Zach Brown, it was revealed this week that McLaren have patented a car with all the elements that mean it could be eligible for the new Le Mans hypercar class. Sure, well, that's uh, one way of looking at it. So, can you confirm that McLaren will return to Le Mans? Absolutely. We'll be there in 2021 with a car, and we've decided to name that car after one of McLaren's most famous names. Well, you've already used the name Senna, so will it perhaps be called the Prost or the McLaren Hamilton? Nope, neither of those. We're going to call it the McLaren Ron Dennis. You're pulling my leg, aren't you? Yep, and about being at Le Mans next year. You bet your ass. Damn it, I fall for it every time. Waka, waka, waka. These are the jokes, folks. Hello and welcome to Gareth Jones on Speech. He's Sarah. Hello. He's Zog. Hello. I'm Gareth and the Constructors' Championship is decided, the Drivers' Championship is decided, but nevertheless, what a weekend it was last weekend in Bahrain. I can't remember as dramatic a weekend in Formula One. Not only did we have Romain Grosjean's dreadful crash, we had Lance Stroll rolling. We had Albon involved in a fairly serious crash in qualifying as well. Sarah, did you watch the whole thing live by any chance? I did. I watched the whole thing live. And after that, I watched loads and loads of replays of that stunning crash and every single second by second update of how he would have escaped the car successfully. So it was quite surreal, actually. What was your reaction when you saw it happen in lap one of the race? Well, obviously, Obviously, there is an instant worry that the driver's not going to be okay. You wonder what's happened. I don't think they showed the pictures of him sort of being in flames until after they were guaranteed that Roman was actually okay. So they showed pictures of him. I think the cameras went straight to him sitting in the car, pretty much unscathed, which was remarkable, really unbelievable, as everybody would agree. My thoughts were obviously a bit of a worry, but huge relief. And then I was just glued to the pictures and the replays because it was just that dramatic and miraculous that he was able to just manage to get himself out and jump out. It was just the way that the front part of the car once it had split from the back part of the car wedged itself into the barriers there was just enough room for him to actually be able to maneuver himself out of the cockpit and through the halo and then push himself up through the barriers and over the top I mean it was just miraculous had he been maybe a bit tighter to the barriers maybe he wouldn't have been able to get out you never know yeah miraculous is the term here I was watching it with Tycho the two of us actually leapt up out of our seats, ran towards the television, hands in the air, screaming, oh my God, it was terrifying. Did you have the same experience? Yeah, the very similar reaction of immediately you're shocked and terribly worried as to what has actually happened in that moment, particularly when they cut away so quickly from the accident. Anytime that a driver has that kind of high-speed shunt. Honestly, one of the first things I thought was that something other than the car must have exploded because we haven't seen that kind of fire in an accident for over 30 years and when there was that instant fireball and in that moment in that split second I thought I could see the body of the car away from the center of the fire which we now know is the fact that essentially the center of the fire was where Grosjean was on the other side of the barrier in the front part of the car 
and the rear part of the car had broken away. And what I could see in that moment was the rear of the car that I took to be the whole of the car. And it wasn't a particularly developed thought, but I just thought that the car must have hit something like a generator or a motorbike or some kind of trackside thing that shouldn't really have been there, but that was what had gone up. I honestly didn't immediately think that it was the car that had gone up in flames. Yeah, I agree. It was the same here. I thought it looked like he'd hit an oil drum or something because this huge plume of fire leapt up. And we don't normally see fire in Formula One these days because the fuel cell is so difficult to break and there are safety cutoffs to prevent any spillage of fuel igniting as well. And yet it seemed to have happened this time, I don't know what the latest thoughts are. I know that the FIA are investigating pretty carefully at the moment, but it was believed possibly to have been the fuel collector which had enough fuel in it to ignite. Is that right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so much of what we might say about this has to be caveated by emphasising that a lot of this is stuff that needs to be carefully investigated in detail with access to a lot of data and so on that we just don't have access to right now. And we're just going on what we have seen from the publicly available information and pictures to date. It seems to me that a lot of people that are familiar with the cars and the way that accidents unfold had said that that fireball, dramatic though it was, looked to them a lot more like a few kilos of fuel, not the 100 kilos of fuel that would have been in the fuel cell at the start of the race. So I can totally believe that that was just the relatively small amount of fuel that was in the fuel collector, in fuel lines, and in the fuel system other than the fuel cell in the moment that the car was broken apart by the impact and the torque of the front part wedging in the barrier while the car was still rotating and the back of the car was wrenched away by the impact. And in that moment, all of that smaller amount of fuel goes up in a flash with that dramatic result. At the end of the race, at the scene of the accident, there was members of the Haas team all around trying to pick up bits and pieces of the car. And my understanding is that the car will have a black box similar to aeroplanes. So they will be reviewing technically exactly what had happened or any implications that could have caused that crash technically. But there's still no unbelievable doubt that the fuel tanks and all that being exposed would have created the bomb that it was or the explosion, rather. My understanding is that the fuel cell was still intact after the crash. Oh, was it? That's something I didn't know. Yeah, the fuel cell was, as in the large bag of fuel that's behind the driver. I believe that was intact. What wasn't intact was fuel lines, the fuel collector, which is, I believe, a part of the fuel delivery system that's in between the fuel cell and the cylinders, basically. It's part of the pumping and delivery mechanism. That was the stuff that was broken apart and contained enough fuel to cause that fireball. But that's just my understanding. I wouldn't want to stake very much on that. That's just what I'd understood from early reports. I just want to say that we are recording this show on late Tuesday afternoon. So a great deal of the information regarding what exactly did happen hasn't yet emerged. And there's still a certain amount of speculation in the air. And that's all we can talk about at the moment. It was shocking, truly shocking. And I made a tweet about it immediately that we did see Grosjean 
emerging from the flames, guided out by Dr. Ian Roberts and Alan van der Merwe, the medical car driver. My relief made me tweet a gag. I tweeted a gag which said something like, Hello, Nico Hulkenberg, this is Gunther Steiner. What are you doing next weekend? And I got in trouble for that. Somebody berated me, only one person, but one person berated me for making light of a very serious situation. Yeah, it was a serious situation, but you know what? It kind of ended okay. We saw him walk away at that point, and that's the relief which allowed me to make that joke. And I think that's a fairly human reaction. I would imagine there's a lot of black humour in the pit lane as well. Whilst we regard these incidents as very serious, if you do see someone walk away relatively unscathed, you make light of it. In terms of relative damage, Roman got some burnt fingers and did he break any ribs or are they bruised ribs? Do we know? I think they're bruised. My understanding is that he had x-rays straight after the race and they all came up clear. So no broken bones, no broken ribs, just some burnt hands and fingers and one ankle, I believe, but no broken ribs, probably just bruising. I think he put on his Instagram only today, or was it yesterday, of him doing squat. <laughs> so he said he was actually happy to actually be able to do a squat, that he is recovering from the impact, that kind of impact. You know, he was going 220 kilometers an hour or 137 miles per hour at the time of right. the impact. So that's got to hurt. When you have that kind of impact, internal bruising is not uncommon. You get bruised lungs are not uncommon because when you come to such a sudden halt from that speed, the stuff in the middle of your body is still moving and it hits the front of your body. Internal bruising is not uncommon. So he's certainly going to be aching all over, even apart from the second degree burns, I think, that he got to his hands. And if you notice, when he jumps out of the car and jumps over the rail, he's only got one of his race boots still on. I know! Um, he, he left one of them behind in the car. Yeah, was that because it got wedged in the car in his hurry to get out, I wonder? You would think so. I would assume so, yeah, but who knows? I think that the ankle where his boot came off is the one that has burns on it. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, We were talking about our immediate reactions to the crash and with every subsequent replay of the accident and every other angle that we saw, I just became more and more astonished that he'd been able to get out of the car on his own without serious injury. It really was extraordinary. And Dr. Ian Roberts and Alan van der Merwe in the medical car and those marshals that were first there on the scene, all credit to them for doing a magnificent job, getting down to their jobs immediately and beautifully and doing everything you could ask of them to help Groja in the moment when he really needs the help. Yeah, full credit to all the marshals at Bahrain, with the exception of one, because a little later in the race, Norris spotted a marshal running across the track carrying a fire extinguisher. Now, ever since Kyle Army in 1977, it has been forbidden to cross the track during a race when cars are on the circuit. Because as we all know, what happened in that race, a marshal called Janssen van Vuren, a young 19-year-old, crossed the track at Kyle Army carrying an extinguisher and Welsh Formula One driver Tom Price came over a brow of a hill unsighted and that fire extinguisher made contact with Tom's head and killed him instantly. Equally tragic, that marshal was also killed 
in the impact. And the idea that someone should be on a track no matter what the circumstances. You know, one of the first rules of triage, I suppose, is, you know, don't make the situation any worse. And no matter how bad the situation, if you're running across the track, you are making the situation worse by putting yourself in danger. Now there are two people in danger. You know, when someone falls in a river, the last thing you're supposed to do is to jump into the river to haul them out. You do everything apart from getting that water because then you've got two people in trouble in the water. And I'm sorry if I'm sounding irate about this, but I take it quite personally over Tom Price. And where was the failure in the training of that marshal that he felt it was more important for him to cross the circuit than it was to allow someone else on the other side to get there first? I'd be interested also to see what happens at the race this weekend because the Sakia Grand Prix, which happens on the same circuit but on a different layout to what we had last weekend, is turn three where Grosjean's crash happened. Is that actually on the other layout of the circuit, I wonder? Do either of you two know? We should have a look at the diagram, shouldn't we? I'm not sure. If I could just comment, Gareth, just on your chat about this marshal running across the road. Well, absolutely, under no circumstances should they run across the road. The guy that did run across track, I think when all the cars were clear, there was two marshals involved. I was actually just reading a bit of Martin Brundle's column this afternoon, and he says that pivotal of this was Corporal, I think his name's um, Taya Ali Teho. He's obviously sort of from Bahrain <laughs> with my inability to pronounce his name. He crossed the track after the pack was gone and the medical car had stopped. So his extinguisher appearing to create a protective cell around the cockpit zone. Then the other marshal, Sergeant John Matthew, on the other side of the barrier was effective too. Both men from Bahrain civil defence and were promoted the very next morning. So they were hailed for what they did. So one went to sergeant and the other went to sergeant major. I guess he's used his instinctive nature, but I suppose he didn't run across the track until the cars had gone. Yeah, but just to be clear, there was one marshal who ran across the track to the scene of Grosjean's crash when the medical car was on the scene. Yeah. That was probably okay, although, to be completely honest, in that moment, I did have a slight concern about the fact that somebody was running across the track. Granted, all the cars had gone past by that point, and it was the first lap, so I guess you know that no cars are going to be coming round. But nonetheless, there was a guy running across the track before the race had been red flagged. That that marshal did also have a bit of difficulty starting his fire extinguisher, in fact, which I think it was Ian Roberts gave him a hand with, by the looks of it, removing the safety pin from the fire extinguisher to get it going. I'm not in any way questioning the guy's bravery and professionalism. I wonder maybe whether a bit more training might have helped, because in that moment, he maybe lost a couple of seconds in applying the fire extinguisher where it needed to be, because he wasn't able to, or he didn't appear to be able to pull the safety pin. It's absolutely crucial if you're involved in safety and using safety equipment that you know how to use it. It was the second incident with Stroll, when Stroll had flipped over, when the second marshal ran across the track while the race was still live. And at that point, there was clearly no question of the whole pack having gone by. Norris could see him running across the track in front of him. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been doing that. Absolutely. Do you know what? One of the scariest things for me was something that I can't remember if it was Dr. Ian Roberts or Alan van der Merwe who said that when they got to Grosjean, his visor on his helmet was opaque from the heat and had actually melted at some point. So Grosjean got out of that car in smoke, in fire, 
and with an opaque visor on his helmet and still managed to navigate his way around the halo, which no doubt saved his life. Otherwise, he could well have been decapitated. That impact, it was shocking, truly shocking. And I wasn't a great fan of the Halo, but I kind of got used to it. I think it would really be a good idea if we painted the Halo in the colour scheme of the driver's helmets as well to help us identify each driver rather than use it as part of the car. Let's make it part of the helmet. But my gosh, I think the Halo works better than the screen that they have in IndyCar. Because in IndyCar, you can't see the driver at all and the halo definitely saves lives and does allow us to get a glimpse of who's in the car doesn't it yeah the halo argument is done and dusted yeah you know that's it yeah yeah exactly no questions i mean and interestingly enough grosjean was one of the drivers who i recall at the time was more skeptical about the halo who was kind of a bit less keen on it although i think i was persuaded that it was on balance a good thing i wasn't in love with the halo one thing did make me slightly ease up on my problem with the halo was the way that broadcasters have been able to use it for data because although you've got this big band of stuff in the middle of your standard roll hoop camera onboard picture although you've got the halo bang in the middle of the picture they now use that to show data you've got engine revs braking speed which is a stroke of genius they are using that dead space to give you information works very well and it almost entirely removes the problem of that annoying big thing in the middle of your picture. It also gives opportunity for branding, more sponsorship tags. So from a, I guess, team point of view, it's a good opportunity to just work on a whole lot of advertising. <laughs> yeah, yeah, from the inside out. Yeah, but from the outside in, from yeah. the exterior view, I think the halo should be painted in the driver's helmet colours. Coming back to that idea of the halo obscuring half of the camera views, something which has been winding me up for a number of weeks and they finally fixed it, is they now have a rear view overlaid on the halo. So you can see almost what would be in the rear view mirror of what's happening behind, which is great. But... For the first few races, that rear view was not a mirror image. It was a camera image. So all the corners were going the wrong way. It wasn't until they gave it reverse scan and it behaved like a mirror that, oh God, thank heavens for that. It feels normal now, like looking in a mirror. That was driving me nuts. Ross Braun says it's going to be a deep analysis into this. They're going to look at how the halo behaved, how the accident happened, what happened with the barrier, whether the procedures were in place and training. And of anyone on the planet, I think Ross Braun is the perfect person to do a forensic analysis of how we got to this situation. And I'm wondering what sort of outcome there will be. You know, we saw the kind of flames generated by what we believe to be the fuel from the fuel collector. So will there now be a change to the cars as early as next season to prevent the fuel collector from spilling, even when it's penetrated somehow? They'll be looking into that, won't they? I think so. It's pretty early to speculate what might change as a result of this, because one's immediate reaction is that, a lot of things went right. Yep, he's still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. this isn't the kind of incident that makes you think, oh, we have to make dramatic changes because one takeaway is that the design, the safety of the cars themselves is very impressive. I dare say there are always things that can be improved and you can do better on. But the fact that Grosjean could be conscious and be able to leap out of the car, having punched through a metal barrier at 137 miles an hour and ending up a split second later in that, inferno 
And when you look at the photographs of the front part of the car wedged through the barrier and you just try to picture where a human body fits in that, yeah, it really is a testament to the design of the cars and also to a lot of other work that has gone into making that machine so safe in the accident, to making that accident survivable. The, you know, the material scientists that worked on the materials and a lot of people going into developing simulations even that made that crash survivable. I suppose one of the things one wonders about is whether barriers might change, whether that kind of barrier might be redesigned in future, might be removed. But let's wait and see what further investigations show, because when you have a crash at that kind of speed, there's simply a huge amount of energy that has to go into deforming and breaking stuff other than the driver and the immediate you know, survival cell around him. You can't have a solid barrier that doesn't break and a solid car that doesn't break because then the energy of a big crash goes into the driver inside. So stuff has to bend and break and deform in a big accident. Maybe that wasn't quite the right kind of barrier for that part of the track, but maybe the car just happened to go in at a kind of angle that they really weren't expecting. I don't know, but that will be the kind of thing that's looked at. Yeah, the barriers which are the safest in motorsport are what they call safer barriers. S-A-F-E-R. It stands for Steel and Foam Energy Reduction Barrier. Or even better, the Tech Pro Barrier that they use at the exit to the tunnel at Monaco. Basically like a big wiggly snake of connecting loose... Oh, yeah plastic components and that fact that these things can break apart and move around absorbs and dispels the energy as Zog you're absolutely right to flag up you don't want something rigid you've got to let that energy go because so serious was the amount of energy in this crash that it even tore the tethers off the front wheels of Grosjean's car as we saw wheels clearing the circuit from one side of the track to the other which is again a very unusual thing to see in Formula One these days and spare a thought for the drivers themselves Sarah you're a professional netball player previously you're a professional sports person I doubt if you were ever in a situation where you were playing a game of netball where someone marginally escaped with their life and then you had to carry on playing netball but I'm sure you could understand the kind of psychological shock the distraction of an event like that happens to an athlete how on earth did they get back in their cars and race I wonder oh I think it would have been very difficult Lewis Hamilton said the same thing that it was very difficult to get back into the zone and I think even Daniel Ricciardo was interviewed not by Sky it was a maybe a French broadcaster I'm not 100% sure but he did say that he was very uncomfortable with the fact that all those pictures were put to live broadcast and all the drivers could see those pictures over and over again and he just was not happy that that was used as entertainment whereas they actually now have to after that near-death experience of Roman to then get back in their cars and race the race so yeah it'd be an enormous amount of stress and pressure and anxiety and then to sort of have to get back into the race and keep driving I mean remember when Senna dropped it was the same situation the drivers had to wait and then they all got put back on the track to finish the race but before he died, there was another driver that died the day before. 
Ron Ratzenberger. Ratzenberger yeah. was killed the day before, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an enormous mental kind of <laughs> strain. Yeah, well, it was a kind of a spooky weekend this weekend because, you know, we had Albon's crash, we had Grosjean's crash, we had Stroll rolling, and a number of people on Twitter said, ah, they're trying to tell us something, we should pull this race right now. But, hey, racing does go on, and we have much more to discuss in a moment. Daniel Ricciardo, it's been reported that you're upset at the replays being shown repeatedly of that terrible moment at the Bahrain Grand Prix. Yeah, that's right, mate. It was upsetting. Why were you upset? Heck, mate, nobody wants to see me getting overtaken by Esteban Ocon. It's embarrassing. There was some speculation as to who is going to sit in Grosjean's car at the Sakia Grand Prix this weekend, and that was quickly dispelled by the Haas team announcing that that place is going to be taken by Pietro Fittipaldi, which warms my cold Welsh heart because I remember 15 years ago when I was doing A1 Grand Prix, Pietro coming with his granddad, Emerson Fittipaldi, and telling us that he was going to be a world champion and that he was going to be driving the Brazil A1 GP car. He was a little cutie kid. And and also, the other cutie kid knocking around with us at that time was Max Verstappen. I knew him when he was a toddler. So it's extraordinary that these are now grown men. And as far as I can work out, this is the first third-generation racing driver to race in Formula One. We've had lots of sons, you know, Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve, Nico Rosberg. We've never had a grandson or a granddaughter racing in Formula One. Oh, hang on, I forgot Nelson Piquet Jr. as well. I am chuffed to bits that we've now got a third generation and of course that it's a Fittipaldi. It's basically royalty. But how well is he going to do in that car? Because he's only driven it once before, I think. He's had one test, hasn't he? I've got to be honest, I haven't followed Pietro's career terribly closely, but... Emerson Fittipaldi, what a legend. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, for any motor racing fan, the Fittipaldi name is one that you hold in massive affection. He's not just an extraordinarily talented driver, but also a great personality and could imagine he'd be a great chap to spend a bit of time with. So, yeah, I think to have Fittipaldi in the car is great news for next weekend. Yeah, and there's a bit of kind of North American heritage connection there, you know, Haas being an American team and Fittipaldi being an American racing dynasty. So, yeah, good luck to him. Let's hope he can put in a good showing. Although technically Brazilian, let's be fair. Sorry, yes, yes. One of the happiest things in my life was hearing Emerson Fittipaldi say my name because he was involved in the A1 Team Brazil franchise. Hello, Gareth, he used to say. That used to send shivers down my back. He's Emerson Fittipaldi. And he does look rather like Alice Cooper these days. Oh, really? He's still immeasurably (laughs) cool. I was never a huge fan of Roman Grosjean. He tended to crash a little bit too much early in the race. He was quick, but he was always crashing early in the race historically. But I will be rooting for Pietro Fittipaldi in the car this weekend. And also, talking about replacements, big shock as we discovered today 
that Lewis Hamilton has tested positive twice, I believe, for COVID-19. So he won't be in the car this weekend. I bet Valtteri Bottas, for the first time ever, is glad he never gets close to Lewis Hamilton. Ba-boom. But the question is, who is going to replace Lewis? Sarah, who are the contenders for filling in Lewis's car seat? Well, there's a few contenders. I'm just sort of was having a little read up on this because my personal opinion is that this is quite exciting because Lewis undoubtedly has the best car on the grid. So I would love to see how another driver goes in his car and maybe this might break a bit of parity between the drivers and we can actually get a really good comparison unless they get overwhelmed by the power of the car and, you know, somehow they, you know, <laughs> don't finish the race. But the options are you've got Stoffel van Dorn. So he's the former McLaren F1 driver so he will travel to Bahrain as planned up to Tuesday's Formula E test in Valencia. The other guy is George Russell. Now George Russell is the protege and he's being prepared for a potential switch to the Mercedes factory team at some point in the future so maybe this could be an opportunity for the team principal Toto Wolff to give him a chance but then he'd actually have to get out of his agreement or, or contract with Williams for that particular race which could also cause an issue. My personal wish would be for Hulkenberg to come in and replace him. I mean, I would love to see that because I think Hulkenberg's done quite well in the points this year without having an official drive. Counterpoint over here. No, I'd root for Russell, I think, in, the, in this spot. I, I suspect it'll be Stoffel van Dorn in the end because it's a bit less complicated to put him in the car than it is to put Russell in. Because as you say, Williams would have to find another driver to fill his seat. But given that Russell was basically loaned by Mercedes to Williams, he's primarily a Mercedes driver who they allowed Williams to borrow. I'm sure it'll be in the contract that if they need him back, they can call him back, put him in a Mercedes, and then it's up to Williams to find a replacement for Russell. But it's an interesting position because Mercedes have won the Constructors' Championship, they won the Drivers' Championship, so, in a sense, it's as low a pressure situation as you could ever imagine a driver having to be in, given that they're going to be stepping into the front-running car. Any other time, that would be a very high-pressure situation. This time, who cares? You know, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, obviously, they do care and we care, but it's not going to make the smallest bit of difference to the championship results which means that it gives Mercedes more leeway to say well we just really like to see what driver X who we might like to have driving our car in a year or two's time how they would do in the car we don't really mind what the result is we just want to see how they go in the car if you're doing that you're going to be doing it with Russell rather than Stoffel van Dorn good though van Dorn is he's never going to be replacing Hamilton in a couple of years time is he no that is true I should point out that this is all speculation and by the time you hear this show the decision will have been made so please understand that we don't know how it's going to play out yeah <laughs> we're going to look very silly yeah but I'll tell you what this is how I see it it ain't going to be Nico Hulkenberg. To my great sadness, of course, I would love more than anyone to see him in the car. And the reason for this is, I think if Mercedes give Hulk a chance to drive their car, they will see it as aiding Red Bull's decision as to what to do with Alex Albon. Because, as we know, Hulk, Perez are mm. possible contenders for Albon's seat next year. Interesting thought, yeah. Yeah, they can't be seen to be aiding him mm. and also giving a potential driver who may be driving for a rival team an opportunity to drive the Mercedes with all the, I won't say secret, but carefully controlled 
details of how to manage that car. You don't want to lose a driver with current knowledge of that. So I think Hulk is out for that reason. I also think the same applies to George Russell. That George Russell won't be given the chance to drive that car for exactly the same reason that they don't want him going back to Williams with knowledge of the W11 and its operation. Mm. And so therefore, it has to be Stoffel van Dorm. And Mercedes don't need a point. The only reason that they're fielding two cars at this next race is for contractual obligations. They are required by the FAA to deliver two cars to the championship. That's a very political answer, I think, Gareth. F1 is a political game. Yeah. And then, Zog, you've gone for the talent development and I've just gone for best driver. For, for the entertainment, what you'd like to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's what you'd like to see. But, no, but Gareth, on your point about the question of whether whoever they put in the car might take some useful information to another team. Well, can't don't they sign an NDA agreement? Well, I mean, there might be. You might still be concerned about it, and there might be some things that you couldn't really sort of quite cover with an NDA. But my thought here is that if you're Mercedes, you might well be worried about competition from Red Bull and what they might be able to learn from the operation. You are not worried about Williams. That's it, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, less of a problem. Yeah, yeah. Fair points, okay. If George Russell were to get the Mercedes drive, Williams have three options as who to replace him with. They could put Hulk in, <laughs> they could put Jack Aitken in, but he's probably busy with F2 that weekend, or they could put Roy Nissani in. Nissani is their test driver. Right, yeah, yeah. He's a very good F2 driver. He was driving in free practice last weekend, wasn't he? He was driving yeah. in free yeah. practice. And, and he did okay, but not great. And of course, Williams need points, so they're not going to put an okay driver in. So Williams won't let George go unless they are made a fantastic offer by Mercedes. And there's no incentive for Mercedes to do that in terms of cash and contracts because they're not going to gain anything from getting more points at the race. You know, they've already got all the cash they're going to get for winning the championship this season. Anyway, that's a fascinating game that will have already played out. Now, we should mention in the minutes we have left on this programme, two other events which may well yet have happened when you hear this show, which personally I can barely contain my excitement over. And it's got nothing to do with motorsport directly and it's all to do with space technology gareth jones on speed by the time you're listening to this program spacex may well have already achieved something unbelievable and that is their promised test flight of starship sn8 this is a prototype three-engined version of the upper stage of their new rocket which is in theory going to carry 100 people to mars one day the idea is to launch this thing up to 14 kilometers in height kill the engines, let it fall out of the sky, let it belly flop like a skydiver using what they call the elonerons, these four flaps to slow and steer it on its way down. And then at the last minute, refire, I think, one of those three Raptor engines, put the thing vertical again and sit it down on the very launch pad. Well, within a few feet of the launch pad, it just took off from. Now, I think the chances of this happening... What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> I think the chances of this happening are close to zero. If it does happen, 
it will be spectacular. If it doesn't happen, there are two options. Either it explodes when it hits the launch pad where it just took off from, or it smashes the smithereens when it hits the ocean. All the outcomes of this are spectacular. Zog, are they going to do it? Well, well, I'm going to go with what I think Elon Musk's own assessment of the chances of pulling it off, which uh, it's a one in three shot of working out. A lot of things have to go right in order for it to work. Overall, it's probably one in three. Yeah, it sounds bonkers and it's ambitious. That's good. It is bonkers. And and it is bonkers. That Starship is a pretty bonkers project. But SpaceX keep pulling off these bonkers things. Let's remember that just in the last few weeks, the Crew Dragon spacecraft has delivered astronauts to the ISS launched on a twice yeah launched on a reusable SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket and that boost has been used seven times I believe uh, oh no sorry no that was another launch recently where SpaceX broke a record for one of their Starlink launches using a booster which has flown seven times not for the Crew Dragon forgive me I made a mistake there but that's an extraordinary thing yeah yeah SpaceX are doing extraordinary things in developing their space systems their launch hardware but also let's remember that part of the secret to their success is that they push quite fast and aggressively in their development and they're basically prepared to blow things up along the way you know one of the reasons why they've developed their launch vehicles as successfully as they have is that they are literally prepared to blow things up in testing and they figure out what went wrong they fix it and they do another test and hopefully that one doesn't blow up and if i'm describing that a little bit flippantly i'm not being flippant about it they just do have quite an aggressive development schedule and when you're developing chemical rocket technology you know they're big explodey things and when things go wrong when things don't work perfectly an explosion is often the result we love big explodey rockets actually we prefer rockets that don't explode but sarah you watch formula one we (laughs) love it when things go right in formula one but when things go wrong in formula one it's equally spectacular so i can assure you that if you do what i'm going to be doing over the next few days and that is follow a guy called the everyday astronaut on youtube i'm writing that down right now He's outstandingly good reporter who's been covering lots of rocket launches, not just SpaceX stuff recently. Sarah, you have to watch this live because okay. if it happens, you won't believe what you're seeing. And if it goes wrong, you still won't believe what you're <laughs> seeing. And I hope nobody gets hurt. There is a possibility, of course. No one's on board the rocket, but there are people at the launch site. We might just say the technology that's going into Starship, it's a remarkable spacecraft. Those Raptor engines that you mentioned. Huge. There are three on this prototype i'm not sure how many the proposed final version of the upper stage has this raptor engine first of all it's a staged combustion or closed cycle rocket engine which is a slightly more complicated slightly more difficult design of rocket engine to make work than the open cycle engines that the saturn 5 f1 engines were for example yeah but you get significant gains in efficiency don't you this is the difference between essentially to power the pumps that a rocket engine uses to pump the fuel and the oxygen into the combustion chamber a rocket engine generally uses some of the fuel and the oxidizer in a pre-burner stage to drive a pump to pump the rest of the fuel and the oxidizer into the main combustion chamber. Yeah. Now, you can vent the exhaust from that as a separate gas flow to the side of your engine, which sort of makes all of your plumbing and your design a little bit easier, but costs you a bit of efficiency. 
or you can create a design where you have everything enclosed and the exhaust gas is from the turbine that is burning to drive your pumps. It's a gas turbine. It has to be more than a simple combustion chamber. It has to be a turbine because blades have to be driven. A rocket turbine engine. Let's call it a rocket turbine engine because you're pumping oxidizer and fuel into it to burn to drive the turbine that then drives the impeller blades for your pump. The point being that you have exhaust gases that for maximum efficiency you want to feed back into your combustion chamber. Yeah. But that makes for a more complicated design. There are more things that can go wrong. And this kind of staged combustion, closed cycle combustion is harder to get to work, but it gives you greater efficiency. And the Raptor engine is a closed cycle staged combustion design, which is therefore very efficient. And it also runs on methane, whereas the Merlin engines on the Falcon rockets use... Run on kerosene. Yep, yeah, right. Use kerosene, or, which is your sort of more common rocket fuel. Again, it's what the Saturn V used. Methane is chosen in part because you can make it on Mars. Yeah, you know it, it's an easier fuel to make in space and to refuel your rocket with. And one of the big things about the Starship design is that it's designed to be refueled in orbit. You know, get into Earth orbit, refuel it in orbit, and then go from Earth orbit to Mars, or to be refueled on Mars. It's a very clever. Very interesting design. Let's hope it works on Wednesday or wherever they go up this week. Basically, what you've just described, Zog, are the first space pit stops, if you think about it. And SpaceX are into refuel. I mean, that itself is exciting. I've just did a bit of quick research. The operational version of Starship will have six Raptor motors. There are three on the SN8 prototype and the super heavy launcher, the main stage, which will push the upper stage into orbit, will have 28 Raptor motors. That is one heck of a rocket. Sarah, I'm going to make sure that you don't miss this because if you think Formula One is exciting. I've been listening and learning and loving, so I will be following the everyday astronaut. (laughs) You're going to love it. It's going to be so exciting. Like Formula One, there's an awful lot of waiting around. You wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And then when it goes, you're so primed, no matter how it goes, it's exciting. So there's that. Listen, we've got to start wrapping this up. We're almost out of time, but we have to also talk very briefly about another extraordinary space achievement that's happening as we speak this very second, the Chinese space program has landed on the moon a number of occasions now. They put a rover called U2 on the near side of the lunar surface and it drove around. They put a rover, both uncrewed, I should say, on the far side of the lunar surface and it drove around for a while examining the moon in ways that hadn't been examined previously. And as we speak, the Chinese are landing a spacecraft on the lunar surface which will not only take samples of the lunar surface but also drill down a couple of meters into the lunar surface and gather some of the lunar regolith the type of which has never been brought back to earth before and they're going to bring it back to earth they've got a lunar sample and return mission and it will be back before Christmas, this is the thing, moon missions, the moon's not that far away, it's only like two or three days away. So we're going to get stuff back from the moon before Christmas that we've never seen before. And this is what's forcing this new space race. The idea that the Chinese are on the moon is what's driving America to rethink its moon program. And they will try doing it with their space launch system, the Artemis program. But I reckon they're going to be relying on SpaceX's technology because it will be proven and cheaper than NASA's own developed stuff. Just a comment on what you said at the end there about the cost. One thing that we didn't discuss about Starship is 
how cheap it will be as a launch vehicle. Because it's completely reusable, your cost of launch is your fuel and the cost of all the infrastructure, the systems, the personnel that go into each launch. And if you're doing it with any sort of regularity, which you can do because it's not a system that requires a great deal of refurbishment and rebuilding in between each launch, and because it can carry so much mass into orbit, I think 150 tonnes to low Earth orbit, it will be a very cheap launch system. In fact, it will potentially be the cheapest way of getting 100 kilos of satellite into orbit. And given the pace of development that SpaceX have demonstrated, yeah, it's quite conceivable that it'll be a SpaceX vehicle taking people to the moon rather than a NASA vehicle. Well, I look forward to seeing that. I look forward to the events over the next few days. Good luck to China getting stuff back from the moon. Good luck to SpaceX getting stuff off the pad and then safely back onto it. I'm going to be watching, Zog. I know you're going to be watching, Sarah. Tell me you're going to be watching now. Absolutely, yeah, I will. I want to get involved. It is big stuff. stuff. It's the future in the making. (laughs) Yes, it is. And talking about the future... Look to the future now, it's only just begun. Our next episode is our annual winter festival programme. I won't say Christmas, I won't say Festivus. It'll be our winter (laughs) show. Uh, Sarah, you're not going back to Australia, so you're going to be here for it, right? I will be here in London, yes, yes. Cool. Well, don't miss that. We'll see you for Christmas. He's been Zog. Goodbye. She's been Sarah. Bye-bye. I was Gareth, and we'll see you for the next show. So until then, happy landings. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!